Tonight's scripture reading is Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, for your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer, in Christ's name. Amen. It has been said that if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Right? That feeling of dwelling on something, turning over something in your head over and over until it affects your whole person. All of us know how to meta-worry, right? And the more that we learn about ourselves and our brains through neuroscience, we understand that this ancient practice of meditation is a very powerful thing. Listen to this um, comment from someone in that field. Moment by moment, we choose and sculpt how our ever-changing mind will work. We choose who we will be the next moment in a very real sense. And these choices are left embossed in physical form on our material selves. Now, depending on what you emboss through your meditation will make the difference between what's harmful and what's healing. We're going for the second, right? That's what we want. And the Christian faith teaches us that there is nothing more healing than to meditate on the steadfast love of God. Nothing more healing than that. And in this text, we see that there is a close relationship between our theme that we've been talking about, remembering forward, remembering in meditation. 
When Dr. Red started our series out of Psalm 77, one of the verses we saw was, I will remember your wonders of old. Meditate on your mighty deeds. And then our passage, I will remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Remembering and meditation. One pastor has called it memitation. And you know who that pastor was? Me. You know how I love to coin phrases that you all go, don't expect that to go viral, Glenn. Even if it's a poor reminder, you'll remember it. And this, remembering in meditation, is vital, especially when we are in places of want and struggle, in our wildernesses. And that's the setting of our psalm here with King David. We're actually told in the title of the psalm that David wrote this in the wilderness of Judah. Most likely the time when his son Absalom instigated a coup and and, and sought to take over the throne of David. His very own son, so he had to flee. And you can only imagine the opportunity David had to just worry, right? Worry about the kingdom, worrying about the fate of the son he loves. Imagine the conflict. His son is acting as an enemy of the anointed, and yet it's his boy. The grief and the sadness. And add to this the spiritual aloneness he would have felt in that he was quote-unquote, fasting from the way he normally experienced the presence of God. We're told that when David fled, he had to leave behind the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark represented the, the physical, symbolic presence of God. And while it was brought to him, he sent it back to Jerusalem. And so David enters this place of fasting, and feeling alone, and I was thinking, that's often a mark of when we go into trial, isn't it? When we find ourselves in wilderness and struggle, it's often the ways that we might normally experience encouragement and support are removed from us. Maybe you moved to this city and all those support systems you had, emotional and spiritual, are gone now. You're trying to reform them. It's a hard place to be. Or maybe you find yourself at work and the only one that has faith that you're aware of. The only one that knows Christ. We feel this sense of aloneness. Yet in the passage, David somehow is able to grab hold of hope. Instead of thirsting in despair or obsessing over the comforts he would have, which is our tendency when we feel like we're in a place of want, you know, there's this impulse, this strong impulse to go for those things that comfort me, those earthly comforts whether it's the person I would call or the relationship or whatever it would be. But he's able to redirect them 
toward God. And so we find him saying, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, even where he's able to get a vision of himself being satisfied with fat and rich food. I mean, this is amazing. In this place of want and need, he's able by faith to envision a feast, a day of a feast. We will feast in the house of Zion. And in this way, David hints to the greater David, Jesus Christ, the great king that would come, and after he's baptized, would then move out into the desert for 40 days of fasting and temptation, and yet find that God was his bread. God was his food. And so as we embark on this season of Lent, as you heard uh, Elder David Raymer mention, we, as the people of God, enter voluntarily into this place of want and need, expecting God to meet us. And how do we do that? Through this practice of remembering and meditation. And so that's what I want us to look at for these few minutes together. And we'll look at the content and the consequence. The content and the consequence, the result. I'm reading a book by um, a theologian named uh, Robert Saucy, and he asked a question that really kind of stopped me and made me think how much I felt it in my own life and see it in the lives of those that I walk with spiritually. And he says this question, why is God's word seemingly ineffective to bring about change? Why is it? Right? You might say, why I come here and I listen to you, Glenn. I've been coming for 20 years, maybe. Right? Or I read God. Why does it Why does it seem it's ineffective to bring about the change that we long for? And his response is this, because it does not reach its intended destination. And that is the heart. Or as David would say, my soul and my flesh. Now, the heart in the Bible is not just emotion. The heart is command central. The heart is the whole iceberg. The heart is actually the totality of the mind and the emotions and the will. This is what the heart represents in the Bible. Jesus once told a parable about the word of God in the heart. And in it, he inferred that there are layers to the heart. Right? He said, well, the word of God on some, it falls on the top layer on a rocky soil and it doesn't really root. And then other times the word falls and it gets in there, but the concerns and the idols of the world and the worries of the world choke it out. But when it goes deep, the harvest is a hundredfold. An amazing harvest. For the word of God to have its intended effect on you and I, brothers and sisters, it must... It must reach the depths of our being. It must reach the depths of our heart. And how does that happen? Through meditation. 
through remembering and meditation. I'm really resisting, resisting the impulse to say meditation. It's so much easier. And this is what the scripture tells us, right? When it uses words like dwell on, or, the, or in uh, the New Testament book of Colossians, set your mind on, or where the Apostle Paul tells his mentee to immerse himself in the gospel. But on and in what do we do that? Because as we've already said, all of us know how to meditate. All of us have thoughts going on all the time. What does it look like to have a life-changing meditation? Well, David gives us some hints, a model. What, what is in David's meditation? One is the presence of God. In verse 2, he says that he remembers experiencing the power and the glory of the Lord in worship, public worship. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that there is a special presence of God given and enjoyed in worship. It makes total sense. God loves his family together. They're gathered around the ways that he has, the ordinary means of grace, meaning these ordinary ways that he said he would show up. And so... One of the ways that we begin to meditate with change is we actually remember the times where God met us as we were gathered together. I think about over these 20 years how many times I have been moved deep in my soul by the presence of God. Maybe it was through a testimony. It was through someone preaching. It was something someone said through the prayer or the confession or the worship team moving us. David is remembering that. He also remembers God as his his help. Past tense, you have been my help. We never forget the people that help us, do we? I mean, that really helped us. And so for each of us here, one of the things that we need to recover and meditate is, how has the Lord helped you? You have your own story. Every one of us that knows God, that knows Christ, I will say often has a scrapbook of faith, a way that he has worked in that story, and only you can give praise and declaration for that because only you and he know. How has he helped you? Maybe it's been in a transition to the city that we just talked about, a new job, a new season of life, a conflict that you thought would never find any peace through an invisible illness that you bear? How has he helped you at night, through the long, dark nights? And lastly, he meditates on the love of God, the steadfast love which he says is better than life. If David was maybe writing the song in our generation, he maybe maybe would have said, all that I need is the air that I breathe and to love you. Right? That's all I need. And I will say every true child of God has had some experience, maybe you feel like it was just a moment or two, where 
the love of God for you was so clear, so near. It was better than life. Just for a moment, you thought, this is, this is the best thing that I've experienced. The superlatives. And here's the thing about it. David would have envied our position, right? Because what he only saw dimly, we can see clearly for those of us that live after the coming of Jesus Christ. Because the love of God is preached and told to us in just a, a new way. We get a glimpse into what, the, what God the Father gave up out of love. Right? His blameless, his blameless and beloved Son, his prize that he gave him up for a world that scorned him. Sinners that were just ignorant. Anybody that really... Even those that embraced Jesus while he was alive didn't really get what he was all about and who he was. That came later. To live your entire life for 33 years and be regarded one way when you're the apple of God's eye. Why did God do that? Because of his great love for you. Or the love of the Spirit and what he had to endure we're told in the Gospels that at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit, like a dove, descends upon him, and they had constant communion with one another. And yet at the cross of Christ, where Jesus assumes he becomes sin for us, the Spirit had to depart from the one that he loved and had constant communion with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or the Son of God himself who leaves this place in glory because he loves to serve you and I. He becomes flesh and blood. I mean, he becomes the eternal, glorious Lord of light becomes a baby, right? A fragile baby. And he grows up that way. And he loves to serve day and night. And the climax of it is he says, no one loves more than this than to lay their lives down for their friend. But nobody's love, nobody's sacrifice would come close to that. He poured himself out for you and I out of love. That was the only reason he did it. That's the only reason he did it. Yes, that we might become justified and righteous. Yes, because it was the Father's will. Yes, because he was righteous and would not be overcome by his enemies. Yes, because he would have a victory over darkness. But ultimately what drove him was love. This is the most confounding thing for us. The way I sometimes say it is, when you're loved, just cause. Just cause. And contra love. The Bible says that God for loved us, chose us. And it doesn't say that God doesn't have his reasons for choosing. They're just not in us. They're just not in us. And when you were loved that freely, it changed your life. What an amazing I don't even know what to call it, a treasury that you and I have to meditate on, that we might have our lives changed. But it doesn't just happen with 
one sermon or a passing thought. It doesn't happen that way. It's the effort. It's the strenuous nature of the way David meditates. And you see it in the other Psalms. What do we find here? He says, my soul clings to you. In the book of Genesis, that's the same word used for uh, Adam and Eve where it says, and a husband shall cleave and cling to their wife, and the two shall be one. Early I seek you. I awaken the dawn. In our language, it was a scheduled priority. Right? It wasn't just like, if I get up early enough. He was like setting his alarm to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet and meditate on you, on your steadfast love. And then attentiveness, he, he likens himself to someone on guard duty, right? Someone who's sitting there in the dark with the watches of the night, listening for every sound, every branch. Then lastly, the whole person's involved. He says, I lift my hands. I mean, this ain't just like a passing thought or, you know, if I hear something that encourages me. It's this, it's with the same intention that you and I meditate on all the other stuff that doesn't help us. I mean, we put a lot of effort into that stuff, right? Thinking about our career, strategizing, daydreaming our career, pouring through catalogs of something that we want. You know, imagining what would it be like if, you know, we found that person and how our lives would take off and what our fa- all these things, what my kids will be, all the effort we make to meditate on. We know how to do it. Can we redirect it? So it changes our lives. Uh, in the book Return of the Prodigal Son by the late Henry Nouwen, uh, which has had a profound impact on a lot of people, in fact, Many of you have mentioned that book. You know, and you may know the background that uh, for years, Nowen hoped that he could see Rembrandt's depiction uh, in person. And he finally got the chance to do it. You know, this massive, glorious painting. And for several, several days and hours, he gazed at it. He took notes. He listened to what people said as they saw it. It was that sort of meditation that resulted in that book. You and I must ponder the grace and love of God until it takes possession of us. Until it takes possession of our thoughts and our affections. And as we do, The consequence comes before us. Two I'll mention. One is participation. As we uh, are mindful of um, African American Heritage Month, um, we think of the great spiritual, Negro spiritual, Were You There? Right? It was first printed in uh, 1899. And you know the refrain. Were you there when you crucified, when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Were you there? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they pierced his side? Right? What's it doing? It's beckoning us to participate, to put ourselves there. 
And how will we know if we've done that? I tremble. Right? I tremble when I think of it. The songs and stories of Scripture have the same intention. To call you and I in to participation. One theologian has said it this way. Remembering serves to actualize the past for a generation removed in time from those events. So they themselves can have an intimate encounter with the great acts of redemption. That's what remembering is meant to do. This is what you see in the Jewish Passover, right? It's what you see in the Lord's Supper, as we're called to remember. The Apostle Paul calls this meal a participation. In verse 2, we find that this past tense memory then leads to future expectation. The theme we've said is remembering forward. This is what happens with David. As he meditates on the past glory of God and the steadfast love of God, it leads to the future tense where he says, I will, I will, I will. I will bless you. I will lift my hands. You know, the consequences of what people meditate on, it's really life and death. It really is life and death. Because what happens? When someone meditates on something, whether it be good or evil, it eventually becomes their reality. We suffer through these horrible mass shootings. When that happens, what, what happens? Immediately, you know, people go back into the story. What happened? Meditation over time created this distorted reality. And the opposite is true as well. The stakes are so high. And what we dwell upon and ruminate upon. You know, every day begins with a fresh awareness of our troubles and anxieties, right? And if we allow them to stay there, they grow with power. But this is the wonderful thing if you belong to Christ, you have power to take captive your thoughts. You have power to meditate. And I have to tell you a true confession. As someone that uh, has had a lifelong struggle with OCD, and invasive thoughts, what freedom that has been for me. Just the understanding that, and it's not just I've got the power to meditate on what I want. There's also this sense that there's got to be a deep sense of God's love and grace. One old theologian would say, you know, he's talking about thoughts that uh, are not thoughts that we want to meditate on, likens them to birds and says, well, you can't stop the birds from flying overhead, but you can't stop them from making a nest in your hair, right? But it's only the grace of God that will enable you to stop and go, he loves me, and he's empowered me to set my mind on him on what's true, what's right, what's good, what's noble. If you belong to Christ, you have been empowered to do that. And we have to do that. We have to wrestle away the thoughts of the enemy. We have to kick them out. Paul uses the language of put to death. We can't be passive. 
And what's hard is, you know, we are so conditioned in our moment, our cultural moment, so conditioned in our thought lives from just like responding, information overload, impulse, right? I mean, good night, what a sign of it, right? And when that's not there, right? We don't have to be. We have the ancient practice and the power to say, I'm free to do that. And the results are, from this participation, to close us out here, changed affections. St. Augustine said that the emotions and the affections are the feet of the soul. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote quite a bit about affections and said, in the end, our affections are really what shapes who we become. He's totally right. You know, you wouldn't expect the guy that's such a brilliant theologian not to just come down to feelings. But he's like, yeah. What we desire and what we feel, ultimately, we don't do anything apart from that. That's finally what gets us moving, right? Because our emotions and affections reveal what we most value, what's most important to us, the treasure of our heart. Uh, Christian psychiatrist Paul Meyer conducted this study with some students. And um, what he discovered surprised him. He said he discovered that those students that had been Christians for many years were only slightly happier than those that had recently become Christians. But he found one different, one change. The students that had a practice of meditation had the highest mental health and maturity. As David meditates and remembers, it affects his emotion. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I don't know. I, I just imagine like this Judah wilderness cave, and you know, it's just this desert land, and you hear this, praise you, God! I sing for joy. This guy's singing, and you're like, where is this coming from? In the desert of our city, we need to hear that. Paul brought it out in the desert of his jail cell. It's not easy, right? You may be surprised by this, but I don't wake up happy every day. Right? None of us do. Right? We wake up and we're like, oh. You know, once we can even form our thoughts. Trusting Christ is all you need to obtain eternal life. And I want to urge you, if you haven't done that, to do that. Trusting Christ is all we need to obtain eternal life. But to experience abundant eternal life, you've got to renew your mind. You have to meditate on Christ. So in the end, I want to just offer some practical ideas. Um, for a couple years, Jackie Griffith and I taught a class out at um, RTS, uh, the seminary that Scott is president of and Mike works at. And uh, this class was sort of like a spiritual devotion thing. And there was a section that I uh, always liked doing, especially with 
students that are theologians or thinking about theology all the time. And I would just call it, you know, effect, affective Bible reading. It could be affective or effective Bible reading. And I want to give some of these things to you to think about, to try this week. How do we begin to meditate in a different way? One is grab hold of one metaphor in the Bible. God is your fortress. Just think about that. Journal about it. Christ as your shepherd. The Holy Spirit as water. The church as the family of God. Just one image. Or maybe visualize as you read about the ornamentation of the tabernacle or of the wild apocalypse of St. John or even the bloody sacrifices. Visualize what that would have been like. Replay a narrative in the Gospels and put yourself there. Imagine yourself being there as someone's lowered through a roof and the roof goes in and the owner of the, the roof, the owner of the house is like, what the heck? And Jesus is smiling and the religious leaders are getting dirt all over them. Put yourself there. Memorize one simple verse. Don't try to memorize the whole Bible, right? It's like, you know, New Year's resolutions in January. Just don't do it. Lay hold of, cling up one promise for the week. Maybe it's simple like uh, the book of Ephesians says, you are light in the Lord. Say, for the whole week, that's all I'm going to think about. Or one that, um, thinking back uh, on the 20 years, right? A couple people would have this habit where they would um, cut out the pardons in our bulletin and put them on their mirror to remind themselves of the grace of God. And how will you know if that's working? Well, I gave the secret with the kids. The Word of God won't be data and information, right? It'll be like cornbread. It'll be like light. You'll see God arising, seeing it. Don't quit until the word touches your heart. Don't quit until you feel that. And so, I urge you to start by praying and just say, God, would you enlighten the eyes of my heart and open your heart up as much as you can and tell him where your heart is because he already knows. I want to close with this quote from Bonhoeffer. Why do I meditate? Because I am a Christian. Therefore, every day which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's word and Holy Scripture is a lost day for me. That's pretty powerful. Every day that I don't do that, it's a lost day for me. Like I, I, I lost out. I lost out on the meaning of life, the blessing of God, the favor of God. I, I, I lost out. I can only move forward with certainty on firm ground of the word of God. That's why he meditates. May God help us along the road.
meditate a little bit more this week than we did last week. Let's pray. Would you bless our thoughts? Would you set us free? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you hide your word in our hearts so that we wouldn't sin against you? Would you bring the word of life into those hearts here that uh, don't yet uh, vitally and in a living way know you, God? And would you, Lord, bless every effort we make to move toward you and think about you this week? We pray that because we have your spirit, because the spirit of Jesus, the one that came to do your will and meditated on your word night and day, because Jesus lives in us. In Christ's name, amen.